Great job singing. That was a song that was packed full of wonderful truth and one that I was just probably introduced to about six months ago or so, so it was great to hear it sung by a mostly pastor's quartet or quintet or how many of them, however many there were, there were five, quintet. I, I, I lived in Nebraska, you know, the whole math, math thing. <laughs> it's okay to rip on Nebraska. You know what the N on the side of the helmet stands for, right? Knowledge, Knowledge. yeah, thank you. <laughs> Somebody else said not in bowls, so that works too, but... Uh, I did actually graduate, I know this sounds really like Little House on the Prairie, but I, I did actually graduate from eighth grade at a, from a country school. They still had those back in the 80s, and I'm actually going to a reunion of a country school uh, next weekend of people I haven't seen uh, since eighth grade. So that's kind of a, a unique thing. We're going to have a, a reunion at the county fair. Does that not surprise you about Nebraska? <laughs> that we're having a reunion at the county fair where I used to show my hogs, okay? So that'll be a good time. Remember that, that, that wonderful guilt that won me, champion, the county fair champion hog, all that good stuff. You know, you thought, I thought I was a big deal in ninth grade to hold up a trophy with a pig on top of it. I mean, that was like, that's like one of your life aspirations as a, as a kid growing up on a, I mean, my dad didn't farm, but we had a little mini farm, so to speak, and that was a, that was a really big deal. Picture in the paper, all that good stuff with your pig trophy. So we're going we're gonna to go back there next weekend and pray for us, really, because we'll stay with my aunt and uncle who are uh, unsaved and have an opportunity, hopefully, to kind of follow up from my dad's funeral conversation we had in relationship to salvation. And then I'm hoping to get opportunities like that with some of my classmates as well. Most of them are very staunch Catholics. If you know anything about West Point, Nebraska, their Catholic uh, high school is about as big as the public school. So it kind of gives you a little bit of an idea of how staunch West Point, Nebraska is when it comes to Catholicism. So you could pray for us that way. I wanted to also apologize for Andy. I guess they asked me to help out with some song this morning or something. And we came in a little late and didn't even know about that. So I'm still game for tomorrow or whenever. I don't know where Andy went. There he is back there. I'm still game. Whatever it looks like tomorrow. Are there like little kid actions I got to do type of thing? There might be. All right. We'll We'll see. We'll see. I'll make it up as I go, just so you know, okay? All right? All right? So, good. Uh, I also apologize for going a little long last night. I'm going to shut up now and get into the Word. I mean, shut up as in small talk. Shut up and get into the Word uh, so that that we can spend the majority of the rest of our 44 minutes uh, in the Word. 44? That was was my calculation. 40? 40. 40. That's... 7.55. You know, none of you are hearing this, right? It's just, it's between us. All right. Yeah, Nebraska math. It's a good thing that's a digital clock, just saying. (laughs) Kidding, kidding. All right. (laughs) Take your Bible. Let's go to Matthew 14, writing for the brand, writing for the brand. And and I've entitled this uh, this message, When the Ride Gets Rough. Uh, the perfecting storm. When the ride gets rough, the per- perfecting storm. Um, I think I mentioned to you yesterday or the day before that, I, that I'm really not a, a cowboy, that you know, my uh, you know, experience with uh, horses and things like that is just reading Louis L'Amour books. But I have ridden a horse before, all right? And I have, have ridden many horses before, but I, I, I still remember my first experience riding a horse. Now, some of you right now are visualizing that. 
what that might look like. Some of you are thinking of a picture of me on a little toy pony, like something like this. No, that's not what I'm talking about, about the first time I rode a horse. Or others, when I say I, I, I rode not just a horse, actually my first experience was riding a pony. Uh, and so you're probably visualizing something like this when you're thinking about me riding a pony, all right? <laughs> So that wasn't exactly it either, okay? I was actually a, a little boy, and I still remember the first time my aunt, it was a Shetland pony, and my aunt was like, Pat, you know, we're going to let you ride all by yourself. And so I was all saddled up and good to go in the Shetland pony, and literally that stupid pony took off as fast as it could with me. I mean, it paid no attention to the fact that I had my hands on the reins and I was trying to pull it back and get it to stop because across the pasture was a, its friend, a full-sized horse. And it decided with this little kid on the back, it could be the boss. And it took off and it ran as fast as it possibly could. And so you can just imagine, I was probably seven or eight years old, you can imagine this poor little kid just bouncing around all over trying desperately to hang on and stay on that stupid pony. And... <laughs> And I didn't ride another horse or a pony for like eight years after that experience. And I might have had a few other not so wonderful experiences of riding horses after that. So, you know, I'm not, I'm not an expert on that, but uh, I, I have ridden a few horses. And, and eventually, you know, eventually you get to go on one of those trail rides where you, you ride an old 20-year-old nag. And it doesn't do anything more than barely stumble. <laughs> and, and you call that horseback riding. And, and us, us guys like me, we can, we can handle that. But tonight, we won't be studying a horse ride. Or even as you're thinking in terms of, okay, biblical examples, we're not going to be studying a donkey ride either. We're actually going to be studying a boat ride. And it's a boat ride that is described for us here in Matthew chapter 14, verses 22 through 33. And our focus will be on what it was like in the midst of that storm that is described there. And so the context, just before we get into the text, the context is the setting of ministry for Jesus Christ in the, on the Sea of Galilee. Jesus and his disciples had been so busy that they'd not even had time to eat. And so as a result of that, they had actually gotten in a boat in an attempt to go across the Sea of Galilee to, Galilee to get ahead of the crowds. And it didn't work. They got across the Sea of Galilee and the crowds ran so fast, moved so quickly around the edge of the Sea of Galilee that they beat them there to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And it was then in that context that, according to, to Mark 6, that gives us those details about trying to beat the crowd, according to that, and then the other gospel passages, then Jesus feeds the 5,000. So this is right on the heels of the feeding of the 5,000. So notice what it says there in Matthew chapter 14, beginning in verse 22. It says this, Immediately, that's after the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he sent the multitudes away. And when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. Now when evening came, he was alone there, but the boat was now in the middle of the sea, tossed by the waves, for the wind was contrary." The wind was contrary. And the, end, the question I want to ask you this, this evening is this as we begin. How do you respond to storms? How do you respond to storms? Now, usually there are three types of people, okay, when it comes to storms. There are people that are terrified by storms. There are people that are enamored with storms. And then there are sane people, <laughs> normal people. I mean, people that, that you know, have a proper balance of the, between the two. As a young person growing up in Nebraska, we were kind of the family that really liked storms. 
I mean, we enjoyed storms. I, re- I would remember as a, as a kid, we, you know, there'd be a, a, a tornado warning out or a severe thunderstorm warning out. And of course, it's Nebraska, so you could see across the plains, right? And you could see to the west and watch the big thunder boomer, the big thunder clouds beginning to develop on the horizon. And our neighbor would always call us. And she would be like, it's going to storm. We're heading for the basement. Better yet, the storm cellar, you know, and she was all panicked and frantic. And we're like, cool, we're going to the front porch (laughs) because we wanted to watch the storm. Here's some pictures of some Nebraska examples, you know, of the typical Nebraska type of scenery, you know, the bins in the corner, the whatever fields that happen to be there and the great big storms. We would love watching those kinds of storms. And the next picture depicts maybe something similar to what we might have seen back there, back then as a kid growing up or a third example of that. And so those were the kinds of things that I actually I like lightning storms the best. Anybody with me on that? I mean, the 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 splendor of the power of creation, and then as a result of that, the power of the creator, when you you see it a lightning storm, it's just absolutely amazing. But my question was not just simply in reference to how do you respond to those kind of storms. My question is really this, how do you respond to the storms of life? How do you respond to the difficulties and the trials and the problems that Jesus in his sovereign plan places you in? How do you respond to the storms of life? I've entitled my message, When the Ride Gets Rough, but I've also subtitled it The Perfecting Storm. And I've, I use that phrase on purpose instead of the perfect storm. We're, we're familiar, of course, I trust, with the concept of a perfect storm. Actually, that phrase was coined by a meteorologist in 1991 to describe a rare combination of conditions resulting in an amazingly powerful storm. We use that sometimes metaphorically now to describe a rare combination of unusually difficult circumstances in our life, a perfect storm. But, I, but the title of my message is The Perfecting Storm because that's what God desires to do in our lives when we're in the middle of a storm. God's storms in our lives are not just perfect, they are perfecting because God often places us in the middle of storms to perfect us, to mature us, and to grow us in our faith. The reality of life is this, that probably for many of us, we will find ourselves in life either in the midst of a storm or having just recently come out of a storm or maybe on the verge of entering into the storm. Much of life, because we live in a sin-cursed world, is spent either about to enter a storm, in a storm, or having just come out of a storm. And God wants to use those in every single one of our lives. And the disciples in our text found themselves in that type of a circumstance, in that type of a setting, because Jesus wanted to teach them the lessons of the storms. And tonight, the the main idea of this portion of Scripture is simply this, that God wants us, the Lord wants us to value his perfecting storms. Let's pray as we look into God's word together this evening. Father, thank you for your word For the privilege it is to study it together, I pray that you would use it to challenge us, Lord, to change us, to mold and shape our attitudes, our hearts, and to help us, Lord, to be obedient and help us, Lord, to trust you and and help us, Lord, to grow, mature, and be more like Christ 
through the storms you've designed for our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Notice with me four different lessons or four different uh, ideas in relationship to the storms of life. And the first one we find in verse 22, and that is that, that it was his plan. This storm was Jesus' plan. Notice the way the text describes it when it says in verse 22, immediately Jesus, what's the next word? He made, depending on your translation, he made or, or he compelled or he had them get into the boat. In other words, the, the idea of that word there is that he compelled, and the literal translation of it is this, to compel someone to act in a certain manner. In other words, Jesus didn't suggest. Jesus didn't say, hey, guys, there's a boat. Want to get in? No, Jesus said, get in the boat. Jesus compelled them. He made them get in the boat. And Jesus compelled his disciples to get into the boat but notice the rest of the story. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he sent the multitudes away. So Jesus made them get into the boat without him, right? Without him. And I think it's, it's worthwhile for us to just pause here for a second and to, to think through storms and trials and problems of life because they do come in at least two different types of forms. There are those that, those storms or those trials or difficulties of life that are, for lack of a better term, deserved. In other words, there are things that we go through in life that are the natural consequences of either foolish or sinful choices that we make where if maybe we had thought ahead of time, we would have thought, you know, what, what, what was I thinking? Why did I do that dumb thing? And now I have to suffer the consequences of doing that dumb thing. And I don't have time to give you examples because I've got a lot of them in my life, right? Lots of dumb things, or maybe not just dumb things, but foolish things or sinful things. And as a result of doing something like that, we reap what we have sown. And so those are deserved kinds of storms, but the second and even probably more common type of storm are, are what I describe as divinely designed storms. And, and by that I mean those that are tests that we faced, even though we've been obedient, even though we've been faithful, even though we're doing the right thing, so to speak. And yet God in his sovereignty and his marvelous providence allows us, and maybe not just allows us, but he puts us in the boat. He places us in that storm for his purpose and for his, for his design, despite our good choices. Have you ever gone through a severe storm like that, where you're being faithful to God, and yet a horrible storm was, was placed in your life, or you were placed in the storm as a part of God's perfect design? It's been my joy. This, this fall, I'll celebrate 32 years of ministry, having entered the pastorate as a young man, and it's great to look back on those wonderful 32 years, 26 of those spent as a pastor, and so many of those years have been so full of so many blessings, but there were some of those years that were full of some really tough times too, some really tough times. My last pastorate was, again, wonderful, so many wonderful blessings. I served at First Baptist Church of Elyria, Ohio for nine years, and Nine of the greatest years of my life. Wonderful ministry, fruitful ministry, just some, some amazing things that God did. But there was one year of those nine that was extremely difficult. And I was only two years into the ministry there at First Baptist when God put me in a boat. He put me in a storm. And it lasted about a year. It, it started with me setting up my deer hunting stand on September 23rd of 2013 
And as I was setting up my deer hunting stand, I was 18 feet in the, in the air when a ratchet strap basically exploded. And as a result of that ratchet strap failing, my tree stand went flying one direction and I went flying the opposite direction, 18 feet in the air. And so I landed on my left side, having fallen 18 feet, and I remember hitting the ground and then just being able to like feel nothing and totally incapable of even taking a breath. You understand when you get the wind knocked out of you. So I laid there, wondering what had just happened, <laughs> unable to move, and I thought to myself, well, I just knocked the wind out of myself, I'll be just fine. Thankfully, another guy was there with me, and so he said, you know, Pat, I think we need to call 911, and I said, no, 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 just call my wife. Our wives will fix everything, right? <laughs> and so he's like, no, 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 and, and because of what had happened, I'll tell you, the, tell you the rest of it in a little bit in terms of the injuries, I could barely talk, and so I'm, I'm doing this little, Dave, we need, to, we need to call my wife, you know, type of thing. I'll be fine. I just, just, she'll just give me a ride home type of routine. And so he, he did. Let me call my wife. And she thought I was joking. Because of the way I was talking, it was so weird. She thought I was just, she's like, no, really, what, what are you doing? What is, what is wrong with you? Well, she said that more than once in life, but uh, in marriage, right? What is wrong with you? <laughs> and so eventually she talked me into calling 911 because the rest of the story is because I had fallen 18 feet, I broke eight ribs and, and I broke six places on my spine, small fractures that weren't near the spinal cord, thankfully. But I had, I had six fractures on my spine, and then I had collapsed my left lung, and I tore off two out of three of the ligaments that hold your shoulder together. And so as I was laying there thinking I just needed my, my wife, <laughs> um, the ambulance was coming, and they were, once they found out I had fallen 18 feet, they were calling life flight. They were calling the helicopter because of... Uh, something about terminal, terminal height or something like that, that I guess they've got some magic formula. Apparently, I, was, I had exceeded that. <laughs> and, and so, um, but by the time that, that all this started, you know, my faculties were returning, my, my mental faculties were returning, uh, my pain just shot through the roof. I had, never, I had never experienced that kind of pain before. I remember when the ambulance got there, of course, I'm in the middle of the woods, Right? And so they put, you know, they strap you on a, on, a, on a backboard and stabilize your head, do all the stuff to not cause additional injury if there's a spinal, any kind of spinal injury, uh, spinal cord injury. They did all that. And, and the only way to get me out of the woods was to put me in the back of a John Deere gator. And so they bounced me out of the woods in the back of a John Deere gator to get me to the farm place closest to where the ambulance was. And it wasn't until then that I got my first dose of morphine. And I remember the gal giving me the morphine, giving it a little bit of time to, to soak in, and then saying to me, are you starting to feel better, Mr. Odell? And I said, nope. <laughs> I don't know what you gave me, but it is worthless. And she said, okay, I'll give you another dose. And so she gave me a second dose of morphine and gave it a little bit of time to soak in. And I said, again, she asked me, are you feeling a little bit better, Mr. Odell? And I said, nope. Whatever it is you're giving me, you're not touching it. And so finally, she got out the uh, fentanyl and gave me a dose of fentanyl and gave it time, whatever that was, to soak in and said, are you beginning to feel better now, Mr. Hodel? I said, yes. <laughs> I like that stuff, you know. <laughs> whatever it was, it worked, type of thing. 
But it didn't take the pain all together away, but at least made it you know, endurable for me to then be life flighted to the Metro Hospital, downtown Cleveland type of a scenario. And I won't go into the rest of the details of, of all, all of that, but that was the beginning of a really rough year for me. Um, pain is a really rough thing to endure and to deal with in life. And unfortunately, I was young and stupid and thought that I should just jump right back into ministry as quickly as possible. Pastoring a large church of 600 or so people and at a Christian school, just lots of things going on. And, I, and so I, I you know, got home from the hospital after a few days in the hospital, and, and I think I was out of the pulpit two or three Sundays, um, and then just jumped back in. Well, two things were going on there. Number one, my body didn't really get time to heal. And number two, when you're in pain, you can't sleep. And so I, that began a year of me struggling to sleep because of all the pain. Actually, I slept in a recliner for, for a year as a result of, of those injuries. But what I did is I jumped right back into the ministry because it needed me, right? That's the way we pastors think when, when we rely too much upon ourselves. And, uh, and, and jumped back in, wasn't really healed, struggling with, with sleep, and then the, the stress started piling up. Other things started happening in the ministry. I think it was February... Now we're, we're jumping ahead from September to February, and, and I'm just, I'm just, I'm plugging away, okay? I'm, I'm just, you know, when the alarm goes off, I get up, because I've got work to do, even if I haven't really rested. And so I'm doing that, and, and I remember our, our business administrator for our church and school comes to me. It's February now, and uh, in January, there was another issue with a, with a staff member I won't even go into that was really difficult to deal with. And then February comes along, and, and our business administrator says... You know, you know our enrollment is, is, is tan tanked again this year in the Christian school. Um, and he gave me a date. You just love finance, guys. <laughs> he says, on this date, we won't be able to pay the teachers anymore. We're going to be $150,000 in the hole by the end of the school year. And he didn't say it, but you know, what that, you know what that felt like to me as the senior pastor? It felt like he might as well have said, what are you going to do about it? You know, because it wasn't my fault in terms of, the enrollment had been in the Christian school had been on a 20-year decline, so it wasn't my fault. I was two years into my pastoral ministry there. But when you're the senior pastor, it may not be your fault, but it's your responsibility, right, when it's a ministry of the church. And so I remember that. So I, I'm not resting. I, I'm, I'm still struggling with pain issues. I'm tired. I, I'm dealing with a staff issue that was, that was extremely difficult. The school is, is going to close. That's what I thought. You know, okay, we're, and, and that just absolutely was, that's not a possibility. We're not going to close this. <laughs> what are we going to do about it type of mindset? And that, and that had always been my mindset. My mindset in ministry was we were going to work as hard as we possibly could. We were going to pray as hard as we possibly could. And, and I, that's exactly what I was doing, working as hard as I could, praying as hard as I could, trying to solve problems as well as I could, and yet there was no solutions. And then to top everything off, I'm emotionally exhausted, I'm physically exhausted, I get a phone call from my mom, and my dad is on death's door. And I'm like, I, I, literally, I, I was to the point where I could not make another decision just emotionally, mentally, and physically. Literally, I could not decide whether or not I was going to drop everything and, and get on an airplane and fly to Minnesota to be with my mom and my dad, or if I was, if I was just going to stay there and wait and see what would, would happen. I, could, I, I put my head down on my desk, 
And I just started bawling. Incapable of making another decision. Thankfully, my assistant pastors and a couple of men that were retired pastors that were members of the church and knew me well, some of the men that, that I always went to whenever I had something that I needed counsel and advice on, they, they showed up at my, my office door and, and said, what can we do to help? What can we do to help? And they were a big part of helping me to get my feet back on the ground and continue on and, and move forward, even, even making a decision about whether to go, to go home. My dad did not pass away, thankfully, but, but just even making those kinds of decisions, I needed somebody else to help me make those kinds of decisions. That was a storm. That was a storm. And part of what God was teaching me in that storm is the ministry doesn't depend on me. It depends on him. Not my ability to work harder or work smarter or make tough decisions or whatever else I place my confidence in. The ministry was dependent upon him and not on me. And when you're in the middle of the storm, one of the things that we have to remind ourselves of is this. God's placed me in this. It's his plan. It's his plan. I need to trust him and obey him in the middle of the storm. That's his plan. That's one of the lessons of the storm. It's his plan. Secondly, I want you to also notice his prayer. Verse 23 goes on to put it this way. It says, and when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up on the mountain to himself, by himself to pray. Now when evening came, he was alone there. So not only do we learn the lesson of his plan, but we also have to learn the lesson of his prayer. Notice two ideas in relationship to his prayer. First of all, there's his awareness of their needs. We won't take the time to go there tonight, but if you were to go to Mark chapter 6, verses 47 through 48, you would see that in that text it says that Jesus actually sees them. Mark 6 says, he saw them straining at rowing, for the wind was against them. And that is no less true today. That Jesus Christ, just as he saw his disciples on, on the Sea of Galilee, Jesus Christ sees you in the midst of the storm that you are enduring today as well. Jesus knows your every need in the midst of the storm. Aren't you thankful tonight that he is no distant deity? That he cares about and is concerned about your every need? His awareness of their needs. Secondly, I point out his prayerfulness for their needs. Verse 23 describes that when it says, and when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. Now, I know the text doesn't specifically say he prayed for them. But don't you think that was what Jesus was praying for? I can't help but think that, knowing the heart of Jesus Christ, knowing his heart for us as well as his heart for his disciples at that time. And again, we don't know for certain what he prayed, but we got a glimpse of that last night. In the high priestly prayer of Jesus in, in, in John chapter 17, it's interesting, we won't take the time to go there, but if you were to go back there, some of the other things that Jesus prayed for, maybe even some things that we didn't point out last night, that, that I can't help but think if, if Jesus ever lives to make intercession for us now, that he is praying for for us now. Think about that. If Jesus is making intercession for you right now, which seven, Hebrews 7.25 says, then he is praying for you quite possibly and quite probably like John 17. He's praying for unity. John 17, 11 and 21 and 22. He's pray, praying for joy, John 17, 13. He's pray, praying for spiritual protection, John 17, 15. He's praying for holiness. We focused on that last night. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth, John 17, 16 through 19. He's praying for our testimony that the world may know that you have sent me, John 17, 23. And so Jesus today 
in the midst of your storm, and even if you're not going through a storm, Jesus is praying for you. If you're going through a storm, Jesus is saying to you today, I am praying for you. That ought to encourage your heart. I mean, for me, as someone in ministry, one of the most encouraging things I hear from people is when somebody walks up to me and says, Pastor or Dr. Odell, I'm praying for you. And then on top of it, it's even more encouraging when they walk up to me and say, I'm praying for you for this and for this and for this. And they give some of the specific ways that they are praying. And Jesus is praying for us very specifically. And that ought to be an encouragement to our heart because the things that Jesus prays for in the midst of the storm are the things we need the most. And the things we need the, 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 the most in terms of what we're facing. We need unity in the midst of the storm because we tend to lash out at one another in the storms, right? We need, we need joy in the midst of the storm. That's something for which Jesus prayed, John 17. Because oftentimes joy is absent in the midst of the storms. We need God's spiritual protection because you're more likely to cave into temptation when you're in the middle of a storm. We need Jesus also praying for us to have a testimony of holiness in the midst of the storm, lest we lose our testimony while faced with the trials of life. The disciples were totally oblivious to Jesus' prayer for them, but we should not be oblivious to his prayer for us and for you if you're going through a storm right now. He's praying for you to to trust him. He's praying for you to learn. He's praying for you to be more like him. He's praying for you to rely on him. He's not praying for the storm to end. He doesn't have to pray for that. He could do that right now. But he is praying for you to be faithful in the storm. His prayer. Thirdly, his presence. His presence. Verses 25 and 32 describe what is probably the most familiar part of the text in relationship to what happens then, notice what it says there. Now in the fourth hour of the night, Jesus went to them, walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, it is a ghost. And they cried out for fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, be of good cheer. It is I. Do not be afraid. Quickly, I want to point out six things here in re- relationship to his presence. Number one, the timing The timing, in verse 23, it tells us that it was evening. And in verse 24, it says that they were in the middle of the sea, tossed and battered by the waves. It helps us to understand how the Sea of Galilee is situated in northern Israel. The Sea of Galilee is actually 700 feet below sea level. And to the north is Mount Hermon, and oftentimes Mount Hermon is snow-capped. So if you can think in terms of a tall mountain that oftentimes has a considerable amount of snow on it, and it's not that many miles away, and so you've got this snow-capped Mount Hermon on, on the north, and then to the east are other taller hills that also would be cooler. And, and so what you have oftentimes is this combination of the, the cool, dry air from two sides and then the hot, warm, moist air of the Sea of Galilee. And those those two colliding, and boom, the next thing you know, there's a storm. And that is possibly what happened here. And so that storm ends up something that the disciples find themselves in the middle of. The text describes it in, in, in terms of them being far from the seashore, from the shore. And so no matter how hard they tried to advance into the storm, they made no progress in the middle of the sea, it says in verse 24. You know, one of the things I can't help but ask myself is this. Why didn't they just go back? 
In other words, if they, if they had been rowing for all that time and actually ended up in the middle, because they wouldn't have gone through the middle of the sea normally, they would have stayed within a mile of two or two. At its widest point, I think the Sea of Galilee is only like eight miles across. So they wouldn't have gone right out intentionally into the middle of the sea. And so it was the wind that was pushing them and pressing them. Why did they not just quit rowing and let the boat ride back to where they started? Because Jesus told them to do what? Get in the boat and go to the other side. Get in the boat and go to the other side. By the way, the text says this in verse 25. Now it in the fourth watch of the night. So what that means in terms of the timing is it has been nine hours. Nine hours of rowing. Any of you that have ever gone places like maybe the Boundary Waters canoe area and have you know, paddled a canoe, taken a couple trips up there, you know that, man, it's really nice when the wind's at your back and you're cruising right along. Not a big deal to row for a couple hours like that or paddle for a couple hours, but when the wind's in your face and you look, literally look at the shore and go, are we getting anywhere here? Now realize this is dark. It's the middle of the night. They can't even see, but they're in the middle of the, the Sea of Galilee. They've been doing this for nine hours and they're nowhere close to their destination. What would you have done? We would have all been tempted to give up, right? But Jesus told them to go to the other side. And so they continued to row. They continued to row for nine hours. Does that not sound like life? Does that not like, sound like ministry for those of, you, of those of you that are in ministry? In terms of, of sometimes you wonder if you're getting anywhere. Sometimes no matter how hard you try, it doesn't seem like there's any progress being made. Sometimes in life, that's the case as well. No matter how long or, or intense our struggle is in the storm, we must never quit until we have obeyed Christ's command. He's placed you in the storm, just like he placed the disciples in the boat. Just keep rowing. Just keep obeying. Just keep doing what God has called or asked you to do, like the disciples did. The timing. Notice, secondly, the triumph. Because part of why we just keep rowing is because Jesus is coming. And the triumph is depicted in the, in the appearance of, of Jesus Christ. Notice what it says there in verse 25, the second half of the verse. It says, Jesus went to them walking on the sea. Which, by the way, it's kind of nonchalant, isn't it? I mean, sometimes when you read scripture, you can't help but go, wow, that sounds kind of just matter of fact. Jesus went walking on the sea. Like, no big deal. Jesus comes to them, though, walking on the sea. I love the way Chris Miller puts it. Our regular Baptist Press has just put out a new commentary. They're beginning a, a new series called the New Testament Exposition Commentary. And Chris Miller in that commentary says this, The one who created the seas can easily make them his carpet. And that's what Jesus did. Jesus made the sea like a carpet. And I, I love the way another person put it. Jesus walks on what we are afraid of. The massive waves that would scare any one of us. Jesus comes walking to them on. Another African-American preacher put it this way. He said, God in heaven isn't wringing his hands about your problems. Quit telling God about your troubles and start telling your troubles about your God. And we need to be reminded of that. The presence of Jesus in the midst of the storm. The timing, the triumph. Thirdly, the terror. Verse 26 Look at how the disciples respond in verse 26. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were what? 
They were terrified. They were troubled saying, it is Jesus. Is that what they say? It is a, a ghost. It's a spirit. And they cried out for fear. Fear blinded their eyes to the reality of who Jesus was. And fear has a blinding effect on our faith. I don't know about you, but when I was a kid, <laughs> I was really, really scared of the dark. Any, anybody else here? I, I remember as a kid, I would take my sister out in the dark because dad would tell me to do something, and I would take my sister with me. She was five years younger than me. I, I don't know if my, my theory in my brain was if the boogeyman attacked, I would feed her to the boogeyman or what, because I was just so scared of the dark. It was an irrational fear. And oftentimes, fear causes us to be irrational, and fear is destructive to our faith. They thought he was a ghost, and it was Jesus, the terror. Notice, fourthly, the truth, though. The truth is spoken by the lips of Jesus when he says this, beginning in verse 27, but immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, be of good cheer, it is I, do not be afraid. Literally, Jesus said, take courage, I am. Take courage, Jehovah or Yahweh, I am, is here. And so there is, there is great truth in the very person of Jesus Christ. He said, don't be afraid. Jesus calmed their souls before he calmed their storm. And that's important for us to understand. By telling them, take courage, don't be afraid, I am is present why is it that Jesus does that? Because Jesus is more concerned about the fear and the faithlessness in us than he is about the storms around us. You see, when you're in the midst of the storm, the tendency is to focus on the storm when God wants you to focus on your heart. He wants you to focus on what's on the inside instead of what's going on on the outside. And so he comes to us Fear not. Don't be afraid. I am. Jehovah is right here with you in the midst of the storm. The truth. And then notice what it says then in response to that, beginning in verse 28. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. Can you imagine that? Can you picture that? Can you, of course, you know, if you know anything about Jesus in the, or Peter in the New Testament, you can picture that, right? Because that's just like Peter. But, but notice what he says, command me. If it's you, command me. Have you ever wondered what compelled Peter? Was it because he thought that he was safer with Jesus out of the boat than he was without Jesus in the boat? Maybe that was part of it. He wanted to be with Jesus. Perhaps that was it. Maybe he wanted to prove that it was truly Jesus. I mean, that, the text kind of alludes to that. If it's really you... Ask me to come, not just ask me. Command me to come to me, come to you if it's really you. And before we knock Peter, because we all know the rest of the story, right? Before we knock Peter, I think it's important for us to understand that Peter's the only one, though, that steps out of the boat, right? Everybody else is staying in the boat as Peter's stepping out of the boat. Now, we don't know what they were saying or doing, but what do you think they were at least tempted to say or do, right? What might you have been tempted to say or do. There goes Peter again. That guy, he can't hold him down. He's always doing something crazy. Peter, perhaps even criticizing Peter for doing what he was doing. In reality, Peter demonstrated incredible faith, stepped out of the safety of a boat, and what did he begin to do? 
He what? He walked on water. Sometimes I think we lose track of that because we know what happens next. He walked on water. He went to Jesus. And in life, there will be people, there will be a lot of people that are boat talkers, but very few water walkers. And maybe there are some here that are like that. In other words, there may be some here that they like to take pot shots of, of people that, that exercise faith and, and attempt great things for God, and all they do is take pot shots at them instead of realizing they're just going to Jesus and trying to accomplish something great for him. Don't be that kind of person, especially don't be that kind of person in relationship to your pastor. If your pastor is stepping out in faith and leading your church to do something he hasn't done before and it's biblical and he's asking you to step out in faith, don't sit in the boat going, what in the world does he think he's doing? Instead, be encouraged by the boldness and the faith of someone like a Peter. The truth. But then notice the tragedy. We know the rest of the story. Verse 30 says this, describes it this way. But when he saw that the wind was boisterous, he was afraid and beginning to sink, he cried out saying, Lord, save me. The tragedy is kind of enfolded into three different things. Number one, he was distracted. He saw the winds and the waves. He took his eyes off Jesus, which we're all tempted to do in the midst of the storm. But secondly, he was desperate. And actually, that's a good thing. How did he respond here as it's described for us there in the text in verse 31, it's, it, it says this, at the, or verse 30, the end of the verse, it says that Peter cried out saying, Lord, save me. Those were beautiful words to the ears of Jesus. Because anytime we cry out to Jesus and beg him in a situation of desperate dependence, he wants to rescue us. Is your faith faltering tonight? Say, Lord, save me. Are you struggling? Pray, Lord, save me. And so it was a desperate prayer. But thirdly, it was a doubt, doubtful situation. Because how does Jesus respond? He responds with, O ye of little faith. Notice what it says there, verse 31. Immediately Jesus stretched out his hand, caught him, and said to him, O ye or O you of little faith, why did you doubt? It's interesting. This is one of four instances in the book of Matthew where Jesus says to his disciples, O you of little faith. Take some time, we won't go to them, but take some time and look up Matthew 6.30, Matthew 8.26, Matthew 16.8, and look at those other three examples, because every single time when Jesus says, oh, you of little faith, something important is happening. Every time, every time that our faith falters and their faith faltered in the midst of the storm, storm Jesus is calling us anew to trust him. He's calling us, he's saying to us, oh, you of little faith. I don't think it was so much scolding, as it was more like a father that was disappointed by their lack of faith. And he just wants them and he wants us to trust him. Oh, you of little faith, just trust me. The tragedy, then notice, notice sixthly, the, the, the tranquility. Verse 32 describes what then happens when it says this. And when they got into the boat, that means Jesus and Peter, when they got into the boat, what happened? The wind ceased. The wind ceased which is a miracle in and of itself. But the, the other part of that in terms of the amazingness of it is John chapter 6, verse 21 describes it this way. It says, immediately the boat was at the land. In other words, the, the, all of a sudden the, the, the wind stops and one second they're in the middle of the Sea of Galilee, the next second they're at the shore. Jesus had performed a miracle by doing that and brought tranquility to the situation. I think it's important as we think about Jesus' presence that if Jesus 
can walk on water, if Jesus can still a storm, if Jesus can still a sea, if Jesus can, can bring his disciples to the, to, the, to the shore, don't you think you can trust him to see you through the storm that you may be facing? Just keep rowing. Just keep trusting. Just keep obeying. Keep your eyes on Jesus. You may be going through a, a storm that is relational tonight. Some type of relational struggle. You may be going through a storm that's financial. You may be going through a ministry storm right now, or maybe a family storm, or perhaps a, a health storm. Whatever the storm is that you are either in, or maybe you see the storm clouds on the horizon and you're facing those storm clouds, just keep being faithful and remember that Jesus is right there with you, his presence. And then finally, our praise. And really, our understanding of the text would be completely inadequate if we didn't focus on verse 33 to conclude tonight because there it says this verse 33 then those who were in the boat came and worshiped him saying truly you are the son of God let me point out two ideas number one the priority of worship the word that's used there for worship is a very common new testament word but it literally means to to fall down in worship it means to fall, they fell down at Jesus' feet in worship. And that was prompted by the storm. It was prompted by them seeing who Jesus was and then what he did, and that prompted their worship. You see, worship is seeing God for who he really is and seeing our storms for what they really are. How big is your storm compared to God? Right? When we realize that, we realize just how puny our challenges, our problems in life are, and yet our tendency, our temptation, our propensity is to deify our storms. Ever thought about it that way? If your storm is too big for your God, what does that say about your storm and about your Lord and Savior? Don't deify your difficulties. See God and see Jesus for who he is. Secondly, the person of worship. They said, notice it again, verse 33, truly you are the son of God. A reference to both his deity as well as him being the Messiah. And the disciples had already pondered this question. We don't, won't go there tonight, but if you were to go back to Matthew chapter eight and verse 27, that's the account of Jesus sleeping in the boat when a storm comes up. And you know that Jesus performed a similar, similar miracle in that context of Matthew 8, verse 27, after they're freaking out <laughs> over the storm and they, they tell Jesus that they're going to perish. We're all going to die. We're all going to die. We're all going to die. And Jesus calms the storm. But it's interesting in that verse there in Matthew 8, 27, this is what they conclude. Who can this be that even the winds and sea obey him? In other words, they ask the question, who is this guy? You know what they concluded there in Matthew 8, 27? Nothing. In other words, Matthew 8, 27, you don't see them saying, this is the Son of God. This is the Messiah. There's no conclusion drawn because they hadn't yet learned. Maybe that's why Jesus put them in a second storm because the first storm did not elicit the, the response of faith of seeing who he was. And so as a result of them failing the first storm, he puts them in a second storm. By the way, that, that first storm was one of the instances of, oh, ye little faith statements as well. 
And so here in the, in the midst of this, the, the, this second storm, finally at the end of the, of the story, they, they rightly conclude, You're the, you are the son of God. You see, nothing brings our actual, our actual, we say we believe, but do we really? Nothing brings our actual theology into focus quite like a divinely designed storm. It's not until you go through things in life that the very attributes and the very character of God mean something to you, both theologically and spiritually. I know we believe what the Bible teaches, but it's not until you suffer injustice that you are grateful at another level that God is just. Or maybe it's not until you're a victim of deception that you fully grasp and appreciate the fact that God is the God of truth. Or maybe it's not until you feel powerless in a circumstance that you fully appreciate the fact that God is all-powerful. Or perhaps it's when someone has just been ruthless or merciless to you that you fully appreciate and love the fact that God is truly merciful. Or maybe you've gone through some brutal changes in life and it's at that time in your life that you're so thankful that God is a God who's the same yesterday and today and forever. And the disciples began to really realize who Jesus was because of the storm. Because he came to them in the storm. It was then that they proclaimed, surely this is the son of God. Don't miss that lesson in the storm. God is far bigger than what is far bigger than you. And sometimes it takes a storm for us to fully grasp that. Let me answer that question tonight that we've been answering all along. So what? In light of the fact that the Lord wants us to value his perfecting storms. Number one, take courage. If you're in the middle of a storm, God planned it. Take courage in the fact that God is sovereign. Accept it by faith. Secondly, take courage. Christ is praying for you. Take courage in the fact that he's praying for you and take courage in the fact that he's present with you. And thirdly, take inventory. Take inventory in that if you're in the midst of a storm, the question isn't really why. The question is who. In other words, who is God in the middle of your storm? And the result of you facing that storm ought to be worship, not the opposite. Not why me, why did God put me through this? I don't know why I have to endure this problem again. No, it's God, who are you? You're faithful, you're merciful, you're sovereign, you're good, and ultimately, you're God and I'm not. I worship you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for... Your word tonight, I pray that we would genuinely be worshipers. I pray for those tonight that are going through storms. You know the hearts and the circumstances of every person here. And I pray, dear Lord, that all of us would be responding in faith and love and worship to you, our amazing God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.